In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, I'm going to answer your questions about fire safety risk assessment, uses of cotton grass, and what to do with your shoes when you're bivvying. Welcome, welcome to episode 78 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions about wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. Now, today finds me in East Sussex, and I'm coming to the end of a spell of teaching, and I'm just taking this opportunity to answer some more of the Ask Paul Kirtley questions. And Without further ado, let's just get straight into them. The first one um, is still relevant. Um, we've had a bit of rain recently, but it's, it's a perennial question, so it's always going to be relevant. There are times when it's more critical than others, and I think that's what uh, Dwayne's getting at. This is a question from Dwayne Yates via the SpeakPipe facility on my blog where you can leave a voicemail. Hi, Paul. Hope all's well with you. Um... With uh, regards to the hot weather we've been having recently and the, uh, the fires we've had around Manchester, um, obviously if you're going to have a fire uh, in hot, dry weather, you have to do uh, a risk assessment and be careful with it. Um, but the question is, uh, precisely what do you look for whilst doing that fire risk assessment? And has there ever been a time uh, on one of your courses where you've not been able to do fire lighting because it's been unsafe. Take care, Paul. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Yep, good question. And I think we always need to ask the question whether it's appropriate to have a fire, if we're going to have a fire. And there are a number of things that come into that. Um, even if we're not in hot, dry conditions, there are a number of things that come into that in terms of whether or not it's appropriate to have a fire. Some of it's an aesthetic thing. Some of it's about whether or not you want to leave any sign of human activity in an area. And a fire is always going to leave some sign, um, even if you do as much as you can to diminish that. So that's a, that's a question. Um, but from a safety perspective, in terms of not causing an uncontrolled fire, which I think is the core of the question, um, then there's a number of things you need to look at. One is look at what the general risk is. Um, is it very dry? Has there been any rain recently? I mean, we've had a period recently where I think we had a sort of two days of rain in about 80 days in the UK, or two days where there was some rain, and even when there was some rain, there wasn't very much. Everything was very, very dry up until quite recently, and then we've had a few days of heavy rain, certainly down here. And when I was running the intermediate course, it was a great week because we had a range of conditions from starting off with very hot, uh, very sweaty, where people had to really manage their water. They had to get on top of their water purification, the water sterilization and good protocols in their groups. Um, when they were shelter building and it was hard physical work. Um, and then they needed their shelters because it then 
rained um, midweek um, towards the end of the week and the, con the ground conditions changed massively. But even so, digging down a little bit, that water hasn't penetrated that far yet. So it's going to take a, a fair amount more water to, to properly soak the ground. But that's kind of anecdotal about here. The, the, the general answer to the question is, look at what the conditions are. And in some parts of the world, that you will be told what the fire risk is. Um, I, I see it as I travel, whether I'm in Canada, whether I'm in Australia, there are markers often set. I've seen it in Patagonia as well. As you go into national parks, it says the current fire level risk is at green, it's at amber, it's at red, it's at high, low, moderate, however they set it. And it's often just something they can set um, on a color scale with, with you know, relative words to it. And um, I'll see if I can find a photograph of one and we'll put it up on the screen on the, on the video, um, just as a couple of examples. Um, that's something that you need to heed. And it may be, as it was the case, say, in Sweden up until recently, as it has been in parts of Canada, in Ontario, in Manitoba, um, for example, uh, particularly in some of the parks, there's been a total fire ban. And so you have to heed that. So you have to look at kind of, if you were taking a top-down approach, look at what the authorities are telling you about the risk and whether or not you're actually allowed to have a fire given the current conditions. That's the first thing, and you have to heed that. You can't not heed that. Um, they're not trying to spoil your fun because they're, you know, you want to have a fire. They're not trying to spoil your fun. If, if it's part of outdoor culture in many parts of the world to use campfires, but if the authorities are saying, actually, it's too risky to have a fire, they're not trying to spoil your fun. They're trying to benefit nature and that they're trying to benefit people's property. They're trying to look after you in the bush. If you set a bushfire off and you're in the bush, that's not somewhere you want to be either. So for all of those reasons, you have to heed uh, that, that risk. And of course, in some parts of the world, you're not going to be told. Um, and so you have to use your judgment. And that's kind of part of the problem because a lot of people's judgment it has no experience to back it up in terms of you don't know what's going to cause a bushfire and what's not going to cause a bushfire. So you have to err on the side of caution anyway in, in very dry conditions. Um, then there's a general point. If you're up on the moors near Manchester, for example, to use a specific case that you use, why are you having a campfire there anyway? There's very little firewood. It's mainly heather. Um, I, I can't really understand in some circumstances why you'd want to have a fire. It's more appropriate, it's more efficient maybe to use a stove. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a general question, just as, a, as an aside. So let, let's go back to the kind of way of thinking generally. Look at what the authorities are telling you. Look at what the general conditions are. If there's no kind of top down, it's okay, it's not okay. Um, look at what the conditions are. Are they generally dry? Do you need to be very careful? Do you need to be very prudent? Should you be thinking about maybe just using a, a stove because it's too difficult to find somewhere that's going to be safe? And then you need to look at somewhere, look at how you find a safe spot. Even if the authorities are saying, you know, if a park is saying, yeah, it's okay to have a fire at the moment, um, you still need to put it in a sensible place. Um, you know, it's not just a case of doing things willy-nilly. So are you allowed? What are the conditions? Is it appropriate based on your judgment? And even if it is allowed and appropriate, then it's a question of where do I place a, a fire? 
and there are some places you really don't want to place a fire. You don't want to put a fire on peaty ground, for example, because you can set fire to the ground. You want to be very careful about having fires on the light soils that you get in uh, Scots pine forests, for example, and in under spruces where you've got a lot of needles coming down, you've got very light soils. And if you've ever had a fire on that type of ground, you'll know that it burns down into the ground very quickly. And also if you've ever done a bushcraft course where you've collected roots from spruces and pines, etc., you know that there's a lot of shallow root systems and they're, they're moving around, growing out from the base of the trees, not that far from the surface. So if a fire will burn down into the ground quite readily in, that, in those light, they're almost not soil, it's really just a, a very light decomposed layer of um, pine needles in a lot of cases, it, it will go down and then it's going to get into the root systems and those roots can act like little fuses, like a cartoon fuse where it burns along and that can pop out in other places, it can set fire to the ground in other places. So you need to be very careful, even if it's quite damp, you need to be very careful about having fires that are going to potentially expose shallow root systems to a lot of heat because they can burn along. I've seen it um, in, uh, in Scotland, even in damp conditions, where you can get quite a lot of heat going along a route. So, you need to be careful, you need to avoid those sorts of situations and I, I would generally be looking, say, to avoid peaty ground and go down onto a on, next to a stream, for example, on a, on a pebbly beach on the edge of a stream and have a fire there if I had to have a fire because then there's no chance that I'm going to burn into the ground. Um, it's right next to the water and at some point the water's going to rise and wash away any little bits of charcoal and whatnot that are left there. But more importantly, the immediate point is that I am not going to set fire to the ground and that's a, that's a primary concern. So, you know, damper ground is fine, but even leaf litter, so for here, here for example, it's quite heavy clay soil. Um, you're not going to set fire to the ground here. You, you still need to be careful with roots in some places, but the, it's very heavy clay soil. It holds a lot of moisture for a long time. But the leaf litter on the top, even though leaf litter is not a good tinder, a lot of people try and use it for fire lighting, it's pretty crappy, but it, it's good at smouldering. And what will happen is, um, in very dry conditions, if you don't move all of the leaf litter away from where you're having a fire, you will get a, a ring of scorch around the fire. The leaf litter immediately there will eventually burn because of the heat of the fire. You'll get a scorched ring and that can potentially just get a life of its own and start moving outwards, smouldering um, in a, an ever-increasing circle around the fire, or it can just take off in one direction. And eventually it's going to hit something that isn't just going to smoulder, that's going to burst into flames. It could be some bracken, um, it could be uh, some dry uh, uh, sticks, you know, so, so something that you would use for kindling, some branches that have come down that are in prime condition to burn it's going to hit something that's going to set fire and then you've got a forest fire on your hands. So um, you need to remove the leaf litter. That's something we always do. Um, when you're going to set a fire, even somewhere like here, you're going to move the leaf litter well away from where you're going to have the fire. You're going to have cold, damp ground and then you're going to put your platform on it so that the fire is um, able uh, to be protected from the cold and the damp. Um, and you're going to light your fire, small sticks, feather sticks, what have you, on top of that. And then you're, you're isolating out this, the surrounding environment from that 
heat and that's something you should always do. Again, what you want to do is look, um, you don't want any overhanging trees that you're going to damage. Um, you don't want root systems. If you scrape away the leaf litter and there are roots going through where you're going to have your fire, you need to go somewhere else. Um, because if nothing else, you're going to hurt the tree, particularly if it's a significant root. Um, so there, there, are, there, there are ways that you can immediately, just always, things that you should do to make sure that the fire doesn't spread into the environment. Then you've got an issue of maybe sparks, bits of litter, bits of material going on a convection current and landing somewhere else and then setting fire to, to, to tinder dry conditions. That's often why um, there'll be a fire ban because even a slight spark is going to set fire to things. Um, but you've got to take responsibility, even if you're not told or you're not told one way or the other about fire risk, you have to make a decision about if I dropped a small flame in this undergrowth here, in this heather, in this bracken, in this grass, would it just go up? If, it, if the answer is yes, you shouldn't be having a fire anywhere near it because all you need is one spark to go into there and off it goes. Um, so you've got to assess that yourself. And then when you do decide to have a fire, don't put it anywhere where the ground can, can set fire. You don't want to be next to lots of dry vegetation, um, dry bracken, dry heather, all of those things can easily go up and they will spread very, very quickly if they're, if they're dry enough to, to burn. Um, you don't want overhanging trees, you don't want vegetation that you're going to damage regardless of whether or not you're going to set fire to it, you don't want roots under the fire, you don't want to uh, be on light uh, pine needle uh, layers, particularly when it's super dry, all of those things should be avoided. So, you know, sometimes you will be better off using a stove. You might be better off using um, something with a with a with a metal plate underneath it if you're going to burn. But you've still got the issue of bits going down. So sometimes you shouldn't have a fire. It isn't just a case of like doing a risk assessment and finding the best place. Sometimes the answer is actually it's not safe to have a fire here. We shouldn't have a fire here. We should use a stove. Um, even having fires on rocks, if the issue is that the undergrowth and everything is so tinder dry, again, sparks, bits of burning paper going into the undergrowth, it's going to set a bushfire off potentially. Even you might not realise, it might just set something smouldering. You go on your way and then it becomes something bigger later on. So all of those things you need to, to look at. It isn't just a case of making sure you've done all the right things so that you can have a fire. Sometimes the answer is actually everything's too dry. There is no suitable place to have a fire. I should not have a fire because I'm just going to damage the environment. I'm going to put myself and other people and wildlife at risk. On to the question of have I ever not been able to have fires on courses? Um, no, <laughs> I live in the UK, it's damp, it's humid. Um, it's even with the really dry weather recently, we've been able to have fires on courses. We've had to be careful of all going through all the things I've talked about, about where to have fires, fires to be fires small in some cases, fires monitored always. Um, but we've had to take into consideration all of the things we've talked about. Type of soil, there are some parts of the forest that we use um, where we run courses where it is very light soil with, um, with, uh, with pine needles and spruce needles, etc. 
and one of the things that we have access to is plenty of water and, th and that's another consideration that you, sh you have whenever you light a fire it's how do I tidy up here how do I make sure I leave this safe even away from particularly hot conditions I want to leave the, the ground cold because I know that there's absolutely no way that there's a fire going to spread from that. So I need to put enough water in there to make sure everything's extinguished and I need to make sure it's cold and out. So before you even set a fire, you should be thinking, how am I going to put this right when I finished? How am I going to make sure this is safe? How am I going to make sure I can get enough water in here? And again, going back to the Moors examples, there are a lot of places in upland Britain where I just wouldn't have a fire even if I had the fuel because you know, I've maybe hiked up there and I've got a few litres of water, enough for, for drinking, enough maybe to make a brew and, and some instant porridge or something in the morning before dropping down again. I've got no water for, um, uh, for, 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 for damping fires out. Um, it's just not appropriate. Um, so you have to think about where am I going to get the water from as well at any time of year, not just when it's dry. Um, that's part of your, your kind of planning and your campcraft and your camp management. Um, so yeah, we make sure that the fires are dead and out before we, before we finished and we make sure that the students understand that that's appropriate. Um, have we ever not been able to have fires on trips? No, we haven't. Um, we tend to do our Canadian trips in September and if there's been a fire ban in July or August they tend to have been lifted by September so we've not been caught by that. Um, other trips that we do in the UK it's not been an issue, the October on the Spey for example. Um, so no we've never had an issue with the frontier trips about our courses not being able to have a fire. Have I been very selective about where we've had fires. Yeah, absolutely, based on all of those sorts of things that we've talked about. Um, I've done personal trips, however, where I haven't been able to have a fire um, because it's not been appropriate. Um, so I've done hiking trips in Scotland in April where going to, going to the toilet, uh, you know, going to the latrine, burning toilet paper is sometimes the best way of dealing with it but I've even trips in April sometimes when uh, I remember one hike in the Cairngorms many years ago we'd had a very dry um, late winter and early spring even at that point the the uh, not bracken the heather was very very dry and it wouldn't have been appropriate even to burn the toilet paper after digging a hole and going going to the toilet because if that had gone into the heather it would have been away. Um, so that that's an issue and in that in that case you need a plastic bag you need to carry it and you need to you need to pack it out as unsavory as that seems you don't want to be setting the hillside on fire. Um, trip canoe trips in Canada there's been times when it hasn't been appropriate to have personal canoe trips so in the summer it's been there's been times when it hasn't been appropriate to have a fire. Um, and I've been in Australia at times sometimes when it hasn't been appropriate to have a fire. Um, so yeah, personally, I've been in situations where it's not been appropriate to have a fire, but in terms of our courses, no, it's never been an issue to answer that specific question. But you have to use your judgment, you have to follow what the authorities say, and you have to be 
extremely careful. It isn't a right to have a fire wherever you want, whenever you want, and, and, and doing even the best risk assessment in the world isn't a justification for doing that. You have to use good judgment and sometimes the answer is no, I shouldn't have it. And I think in a lot of places recently, um, around the Northern Hemisphere, the answer has been no, you shouldn't have a fire. Long answer, but it's an important one. Okay, this one is from uh, Instagram. From Tony Indybush. Uh, it's a picture of a field of white fluffy seed heads. And the question is, hi Paul, is there anything you can do with cotton? There is one obvious answer, but I think you need a mill for that. Keep up the good work. Tony. Um, well, Tony, um, what you're looking at there, because I asked where it was and you said it was near Doncaster, South Yorkshire, um, what you're looking at there is some sort of, some species of cotton grass, um, possibly hare's tail cotton grass um, is one that grows in that part of the world. More generally, you're going to have what people often just call cotton grass or bog cotton. Um, just looking at the photo. It's, it's not high enough res for me to see exactly, but um, it's not a cotton as such. So, so cotton, as in what's woven into cotton garments, is in, uh, if I remember rightly, it's in the Malvaceae, the mallow family um if i'm correct and cotton grasses are in the sedges in the sedge family they're in the genus Aeriophorum. and um so you can't we even if you've got a mill don't go and invest in one tony because you're not going to be able to use it for making garments um because it's not the same stuff um these cotton grasses though if you wanted to use them for a bushcraft purpose Fluffy downy seed heads are often good at accepting a spark and flaring up quite readily as part of a, a tinder, if you like, in terms of catching a spark. They often don't burn very long, and so you'll need something else to catch that flame. They're good for turning a spark into a flame, but that flame often doesn't last very long, like cotton wool. Yeah, if you tease out a small amount of cotton wool and drop a spark into it, it's going to go and then it's gone. But if you've got something else to catch the flame, could be some bracken fronds or something, then it's away as a fire. Um, so that's a use for the cotton, that's the main use for the cotton grass, I would say, from a bushcraft perspective. Um, you could collect a bit of it, make sure it's dry, and then tease it out and drop a spark and see if that works from, from your ferro rod. And in my experience, it does. It's like thistle down and um, cattail seed heads, etc., etc. Those downy seed heads are good at catching a spark. Question via Twitter from I, I've had questions from you before, and I can never remember Nevin Triple X. There's probably a more. It could be Nev Inks Double X. I think I've had this conversation with myself before. I never know how to pronounce it. I'm going to go Nevin Triple X. Why not? It's my show. 
<laughs> okay, so the question is, when you bivy, what do you do with your shoes to protect them from creepy crawlies and wetness? When I hammock, I tend to hang shoes from the side, but it's all a bit lopsided. Am I being a wuss? Um, <laughs> oh dear. Um, so I'm assuming the question's a serious one um, in the sense, you know, I know you said I'm a being a wuss at the end. Okay, well, you don't want water in your shoes overnight because damp, damp insides of boots are never fun. So you don't want rain going in. You don't want water running off your, you know, slewing off your tarp and dripping in your dripping in your boots. So you want to make sure they're inside the shadow of the tarp. Um, I just tend to stand them next to my bivy bag, frankly, because if I need to get up in the middle of the night um, or if I need to get up in a hurry or whatever, you know, if, there's a pro if I'm working, there's a problem in the night, I, I just want to be able to put my boots on. So I just tend to have a big enough tarp and I have them next to my bivy. Um, if you're in a hammock, you can do things where you're hanging things underneath your hammock. Uh, I know some people do that. Um, like a, like a, almost like a hammock shelf underneath. You can put them directly, you can put them on the ground directly underneath your hammock. I mean, assuming that your, your tarp is providing enough shelter for you in the, in the hammock, putting your boots directly underneath you wouldn't be a problem. I, I can't, I can't see. Um, if you're worried about creepy crawlies, um, in the UK, there's no issues with anything. Um, you might get slugs and, or a beetle or something in there, but literally just like anywhere, just turn them upside down and, and shake them out. The other thing you can do, if you're worried about water getting in, and I know some people who do this, if you're using quite a small tarp, um, you know, there isn't a lot of shadow other than where you're sleeping. And there's a risk that maybe there's a little side wind and you get some drips into your boots. Simple solution to that is um, take a couple of sticks, put them in the ground, turn your boots upside down and then put them on the sticks. So like, like, a, like a tent peg type stick, knock it into the ground, put your boot on it upside down. Um, I don't tend to do that a lot of times unless I am in a tiny tarp and I really don't have space under the tarp for the boots um, because they don't air off as well um, overnight. I like, what I like to do with my boots overnight, particularly if I'm wearing them day in, day out, is I like to pull the insoles out and just place them in. So I open the tongues out, take the insoles out, place them upright so they've, they've got more chance to um, air off. And I've experimented with this, like leaving one in and one out, and the one out that's upright inside the, the kind of chimney of the boot, as it were, always dries much more um, than the one that's just left inside. Um, so I like to dry the insole, I like to leave it open so it dries out, but clearly you need enough space so that you're not going to get water in. You wouldn't want it sort of outside your tarp or right on the edge of the tarp where drips are going to go in. Um, other than that, I don't think there's a, a major, there's a major issue. Um, you should always check that there's not something in your, you know, I know even though we're in, an, in Britain, an island, we are in a place where there's no sort of nasties, there's no nasty spiders, there's no nasty snakes, scorpions, centipedes, etc., etc. I still don't want to put my foot into a slug, for example, and squish it because they stink when, they, when they're kind of decomposing. Um, I, I got one squashed inside a bivy bag once and it stank until I, until I managed to wash the bivy bag and the, and the sleeping bag. Um, 
you don't want that in your shoes either, frankly. So um, always check that, you know, give them a shake, make sure there's nothing in there. It's just a good practice for wherever you are, um, regardless of whether or not there's something that might be in there that would give you a, 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 a venomous uh, bite, for example. So you're not being a wuss. You don't want wet boots. You don't want slugs and things in there. Um, and you don't, and, and further afield, you don't want venomous uh, insects in there, and they often do like hiding in those dark places. Um, so that's that's what I would do. I mean, the other thing you could do if you really wanted them up off the ground, you didn't want to put them under your hammock, is if you've got a hanging line, central hanging line under your tarp, hang them off that further down the line where they're out of your way, um, but still under the tarp. That's another thing that you could do. And that's it. That brings us to the end of this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Uh, thank you for the questions. Hopefully the answers were uh, useful to you and um, I look forward to receiving more questions. Remember you can ask questions via Twitter using the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. You can make a public post on Instagram, video post or photo post. Uh, with the hashtag AskPaulKirtley, because I'll find them that way. You can send me an email via my blog and you can use the speak pipe. And I think the speak pipe's a good one. And um, I'd encourage people to use the speak pipe because it's a good audio, audible way of people asking a question. If you've just got a question, that's a good way. If you've got something you like the cotton grass that you want to show, Instagram's great for that. Helicopter going over. So that brings us to the end. Um, please like, subscribe, share if you've enjoyed this. Subscribe to my blog if you're on my blog. Subscribe. If you listen to this as a podcast, please subscribe to this as a podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And then you're not going to miss the next episode. had an Apache come over last week pretty low when we were when we were working in the woods but I don't think that is that's not it doesn't sound heavy enough um, so yeah that's uh, that's me um, end of a spell outdoors glad to have a bit of a break in the hot weather frankly it was getting very hot and humid very tropical almost we've had a few days of heavy rain um, it's been quite nice the last few days, a bit more of a breeze, a bit cooler. It's all good. Starting to feel a little autumnal. Had a few brown leaves dropping around me today. Some of the birches are looking a little bit yellow and brown around the edges. And some of the sweet chestnuts here are, are quite well formed. Um, not a great year for berries so far. Great blackberries. People are, people are saying there's not a lot of blackberries around. Um, I, I would beg to differ. I think there are quite a lot of blackberries around. And the ones that we found have been very delicious, very tasty, um, juicy, sweet, and, and good. But other berries, not so much of a sign of. Um, hawthorns are not ripe yet. Um, they're really quite far back in, in my mind. And um, there's some good beech nuts around. There's some good chestnuts around. Um, I think we might be in for a good, good autumn uh, with the nuts. Um, 
and I think I think we'll go very quickly to autumn. I think it's with the weather the way it's been. Um, I'm hoping that now we've had a bit more moisture and maybe it's cooling down overnight a bit. We might get some fungi. Last August here was absolutely spectacular. We had loads of um, Belitus, we had loads of um, Lexinum, we had chanterelles, we had all sorts going off in the woods last August. I've seen nothing here this year, absolutely nothing. We had some chicken of the woods last week um, and that's about it. That's all the wild fungi that I've had recently. So I'm hoping the fungi improves. Be interested to see what you're seeing around. You can let me know in the comments below this if you got no comments on the other things. Um, always happy to hear from people. Even if I don't reply, I do read the comments both on my blog and on YouTube. So it's always good to hear from you. Appreciate you getting um, involved. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care. Cheers. Mm -hmm.